following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, December 23rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Philippians chapter 4. We are going to finish up our our look at this great letter of the Apostle Paul's this morning as we wrap up the Advent season. And as we get to it this morning, you may remember that last week, the Apostle Paul kind of began this final section of his letter by calling the church to rejoice in the Lord always. In all things and in all times, you and I ought to rejoice in the Lord. And We talked a bit about that considering that rejoicing is simply the active form of joy. Rejoicing is is simply the joy that we have in who God is for us in Jesus. Our, Our confidence, our delight, our satisfaction in Christ deepening and widening on a daily basis is given expression in all of the circumstances in our lives and we call that expression rejoicing. And rejoicing can take on any number of forms as we, as we talked about last week. Specifically, Paul, last week we looked and said, rejoice always in all things. Let your reasonableness be made known to all. So our joy in Jesus produces in us an, an active form of reasonableness when the things in our life, the happenings of our lives are not lining up in favorable ways to us. As our joy in Jesus gets deeper, the more we see him and the more we enjoy him, the more we are able to give activity to that joy in those moments by expressing a steadiness of soul that reflects that of Jesus, a reasonableness. That's what Paul was encouraging the church in last week. Well, as we pick it up and finish it this week, he's continuing the same line of thought. It's not like Proverbs where he's picking up a new idea, a new thought, a new thing. It's all one thing. So consider as we read this morning and go through the verses this morning, what Paul is encouraging the church in is a continuation of this rejoicing in all things. There is an expression of our joy that comes out when the happenings of our lives don't always line up the way we want. There are expressions of our joy that comes out when they do, and there are expressions of our joy that comes out when they don't. But what Paul is calling us to this morning is a continual rejoicing, a deepening delight in Jesus, a deepening joy in Jesus that then has active form, that's expressed through our lives. He's going to bring us back to more expressions of that joy this morning, particularly considering how that joy relates to our worries, to our anxieties, and to the peace that our hearts so desperately desire. So Philippians chapter 4, let's pick it up where we left off last week. We'll pick it up, let's just pick it up in verse 5. We'll read it so you can catch the context. Verse 4, since I already did it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So that reasonableness is an expression of that joy. It's an aspect of rejoicing. Now he's continuing. This is all connected. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we thank you again for the time that we have together this morning. We ask that as we settle our hearts um, to prepare, to celebrate, to remember, to find joy in the coming of your Son, as we prepare our hearts with joy for his, his coming and return. Lord, this morning, that as we consider your words to us through the Apostle Paul and what they mean for our life in between these two comings of your son, that you would help us to hear your voice, that you would tune our ears to hear you this morning, that we might again be encouraged by your words and and know again, even now, your peace that you give as we come to enjoy your son. And we ask this in his name, amen. I don't know when Christmas became such a source of anxiety and worry for people, but it has. It's kind of like we talked about Advent. I don't know when Advent went from a season of fasting to a season of eating chocolate every day, but it did. Somewhere along the way, the celebration, the remembering, the, 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 the focusing on Emmanuel, God with us, the coming of the Prince of Peace has become a season for many of us marked by anxiety and worry. Will they like what I got them? How am I going to pay for what I just bought? Who did I forget? Who's coming to visit? Who do we have to go visit? When's this thing going to be over? I mean, it's sad and it's ironic. But we're an anxious people. And the Christmas season of all times in the year is one of those times that for some of us, our anxiety gets ratcheted up to a 10. And we know the truth of what Solomon was saying in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, when he said, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Now the word anxiety is a fascinating thing. When Paul talks about our anxieties here in Philippians 4, He's using a a pictorial word. It's a a picture word, and we're trying to translate it when we come to it. It, It's a word that that paints the picture of of something being torn apart. Think about something being drawn and quartered for the most part. You know that's what your heart begins to feel like when anxiety begins to take hold. It feels like your heart is literally being torn apart between different possibilities, different potential outcomes, different things that could happen. We use the word worry synonymously, and sometimes you'll find it in your Bible. Some of your translations will even translate this in Philippians chapter 4 as worry, and that's a pictorial word too, and it's pretty accurate. That's a word that paints the picture of something being choked. And isn't that what it feels like sometimes? When anxiety and, and worry begin to take root, it feels as though the peace and the joy that your heart so desperately need, so desperately want, are being choked out. 
Like your heart's being torn apart by these different things. Your peace is being choked out. It feels like your heart is carrying a weight it can't take another step with. These anxieties and these worries, they, they do their heavy, tearing, choking work on our heart. When we begin to imagine a future, when the happenings of our life don't line up and, and our hearts and our minds begin to imagine a future in the most awful ways imaginable, and then we just give ourselves to them. This is when the choking, tearing work of anxiety and worry begins to take place. And it's quite literally the opposite of peace. And so in the time between the comings of Christ... In the presence of real trouble, in the presence of difficult circumstances, in the presence of a fallen world where the happenings in our life don't always line up like we talked about last week, is peace something that we just have to consider as a deferred reality for eternity? What does our joy in Jesus that gives rise to the expressions of rejoicing have to do with the peace we so desperately need? How does it deal with the anxieties and the worries that threaten to choke out the life in our own heart? How do we deal with it? Well, this is what Paul is talking about this morning, and all of these verses from 6 through 9 have to do with it. So let's listen to what he has to say. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Some of your Bibles will say, don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How about Paul never tell you what to do ever again for the rest of your life? I mean, just be honest, isn't that how it feels when your heart is being weighed down with worry? And it seems like it's being torn apart by anxiety at the potential futures that your mind is creating. When it feels like it's being choked out by the presence of these things and you share with someone and they say, well, you don't worry. You shouldn't be anxious about that. Have you prayed? How about you never tell me what to do ever again for the rest of your life? <laughs> That's about how it feels. But before we write off our friends who we do believe have our best interest at heart, let's at least listen to the reasons the Apostle Paul gives and let's try to understand how it connects to what he says and how it all goes together that we might be encouraged by God's grace this morning. The first thing we've got to remember as we did last week, the big E on the chart as we come to Paul's counsel here, is that Paul is not saying that we don't have things to be concerned about in our life. That concern itself is wrong. This church was being persecuted for their faith in Christ. There were things to be concerned about. Paul was in prison, awaiting the verdict on his life. There were things to be concerned about. When he writes in his other letters to the churches, particularly to the church in Rome, Paul communicates, Paul expresses the concern in his heart for his fellow Israelites, his fellow countrymen who have not yet come to know the grace of God in Christ and what would be the end of them if they didn't. Jesus stands on the hillside overlooking Jerusalem in tears, concerned about the welfare, the well-being, the future of his people who are rejecting him. 
Paul's not saying that there aren't things to be concerned about and that you shouldn't be concerned about anything. The anxiety, the the worry that Paul is referring to here. This anxiety and this worry that are quite literally the opposite of peace. It's an anxiety and a worry that, that presents an unhealthy concern for things you can't control. And what really gets at Paul, and what Paul is really trying to bring out in this, what he's really trying to expose and then deal with in this in Philippians chapter 4, is that these anxieties and these worries, they express in our hearts and in our lives a very practical and a very functional agnosticism at best, and a very practical, maybe a very functional atheism in our hearts at worst. See, as our joy deepens in who God is for us in Christ, as our, our joy deepens in our confidence in who God is for us, as he becomes our, our greatest delight, as we see him and enjoy him more deeply, that joy is meant to, to act, to give rise to actions and responses, that rejoicing. And Paul's saying that these anxieties and these worries are the opposite of that, so they're reflecting something else that your heart is delighting in. The anxieties and the worries that Paul is talking about here, they're they're like the false prophets of old telling you that God's not in control. God's not good. He's not wise. He's not powerful. Maybe he doesn't love you enough. He's like the prophets, the false prophets of old saying, peace, peace, where there really is no peace. These anxieties and these worries, they're preaching a sermon to your mind. They're preaching a sermon to your heart that's not true. They're like the serpent who came into the garden, casting doubt on the reality of who God is for his people, casting doubt on the reality and the depth of God's love for his people, casting doubt on the reality of God's sovereignty and God's control for his glory and the good of his people. These anxieties and these these worries, they, they preach a false message. And quite literally, when when Paul goes here in Philippians chapter 4, he intends in the mind and in the heart of the people of God as they would hear this read or as they would read this even today to flash back to something that Jesus said to his disciples when he was in his ministry here on the earth. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Jesus said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious. Second time Jesus said it, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, they seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. For a third time, Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus said, just look around. The anxieties and the worries of your heart, they're preaching to you a false message. Look around. The birds of the air, the sparrows in the air, the lilies of the valley, the grass in the fields, they're all proclaiming to you the truth and the reality of who I am, of my goodness, of my capacity, of my sovereignty. They're preaching to you a different message every single day. Are you not more valuable than they? Do I not know exactly what you need? Can your anxiety and your worry, your unhealthy predisposition about what might happen in this situation tomorrow that you can't control, even if you tried, can it add a single hour to your life? No. What does it do? It weighs your heart down. It quite literally begins to tear it apart. It chokes out the peace and the joy that I give. Your anxiety, your worry, you're going around trying to control this and that, getting this end and this end and this end and consumed about what might happen here and what might happen here. It's communicating, it's expressing something going on in your heart. Do you know who acts like that, Jesus said? The Gentiles, those who don't know me. But you know me. Why are you getting so panicked? Why are you acting like those that don't know me? This is why Paul could say we can rejoice in all things because the deeper our joy goes in Jesus, the deeper our delight goes in him, the deeper our trust and our confidence is in him the more reflexively we're able to express that joy. In situations like this, when things aren't lining up and anxiety and worry threaten to take root, all of these opportunities for our heart to give in to anxiety and worry, they're all equally opportunities for you and I to enjoy Jesus more deeply. See, it's in these moments that Paul reminds us that the Lord is at hand. Because he is with us, because he as, is at hand, our joy in him in these situations can give expression in our lives as we go to him. Don't be anxious about anything, but rather in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, as we enjoy Jesus more deeply, our joy is expressed. Our joy is made active in prayer. Prayer is one form of rejoicing. This is why it's all one argument. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your joy in God, your joy in Jesus, your delight in him, your confidence in him express itself. And in moments when worry and anxiety want to take hold because things aren't lining up, your joy expresses itself in prayer. Prayer is a form of rejoicing. 
Prayer is actively expressing our joy in God. Prayer is actively trusting God because we believe he is who he says he is. We're actively treasuring and enjoying who God is for us in his son when our joy reflexively brings us to him in prayer. See, this text isn't primarily a a verse or a place to go for the mechanics of prayer. This is often how we teach it. We go to this verse, we read this encouragement from Paul, and then we jump into all the different ways that we pray and what prayer looks like, all the different forms that prayer can take. But that's not what Paul is concerned about here. What Paul is concerned about here is the joy in our hearts finding its deepest root in Christ and reflexively giving life to itself in these circumstances in prayer because we're confident that God is at hand because we know who he is and we're enjoying his presence with us by his spirit. And when in our joy we come to God in prayer, listen to what Paul says. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Joy and peace, they they go together. And be careful when you read this. Paul's not talking about peace with God. That's not what he said. He's not talking about peace with God here. You you can't know the peace of God Paul is talking about here if you're not at peace with God through Jesus. And we'll deal with that in just a few minutes. But Paul is talking about something very specific here. He's talking about the peace of God. And I want you to be careful in your mind. Don't imagine the peace of God as like a gift wrapped under a tree that you've got at your house right now that God in these moments gives to you as a gift. And it's like a, a consumable that works its way out. The peace of God that Paul is referring to here, is something of God's own character, something of God's own nature. It's intrinsic to him. And it's something that he shares with us. It's the very peace that characterizes God himself, something of himself. And Paul is saying that it's in these moments when our joy in him reflexively rolls up into confidence in him in prayer that God imparts to us, shares with us something of his own peace that overcomes and replaces our anxiousness and our, and our worry. And we're able to experience his very peace in those moments. It's what Isaiah, I think, was saying in Isaiah 26 when he said of God that you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So trust, trust, delight, enjoy in the Lord forever for the Lord is an everlasting rock. This peace of God is something tremendously powerful. Paul says that it's this peace that guards like a garrison of soldiers. And get into your mind, Paul writing this while he's chained up to a member of Caesar's Praetorian Guard. All around him, the most elite security force of his day designated for Caesar and Caesar's purposes alone. Paul says that it's this peace of God, this very peace that that characterizes the nature of God that he shares with us in these moments as our joy in him gives rise to our prayers when things aren't lining up. It's this peace that guards our hearts and minds such that worry and anxiety simply can't win. 
joy gives rise to prayer. And we experience the presence of God in His very peace in our hearts in those moments. Martin Luther would read these verses. Consider what Paul was saying. Stand up in front of the people that he was teaching. And this would be the shortest sermon Martin Luther would ever preach. Some of you wish I would do this, but this is what Luther did. Here is Luther's explanation of Paul's message here. Pray and let God worry. That's it. The peace of God that overcomes anxiety's threats. It comes to us through prayer as our joy in Christ rolls upward. When the happenings and circumstances of life are and aren't lining up the way we would want. But that's not all that Paul has to say about peace. That's not all that he has to say about how our joy rolls out or is expressed in our life. It's not all he has to say about rejoicing as it's related to peace. We have to consider, Paul says, what, what our minds think on, what our minds ponder, and then what we put into practice in our lives. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What does this have to do with our rejoicing in all things, our, our joy in Christ, expressing itself in various ways, in our reasonableness, in our dependence upon God, in our trust in God, and coming to Him with prayer? What does this have to do with any of that? Well, if God's peace guards our hearts and minds as our joy in Jesus is expressed, as our joy in Jesus is, gives rise to prayer, when things in our life are not lining up and anxiety and worry threaten to tear our hearts apart and choke out the joy and peace that God gives, then it would make sense to know that our joy, our delight, our confidence in Jesus is cultivated as our hearts and our minds consistently ponder think about, take into account, calculate, reckon whatever is true as opposed to that which is a false. When we take in and consider and ponder and reckon that which is honorable, not dishonorable, it would make sense that our, our joy, as we see Jesus in our minds and our hearts, take into account that which is just and not just, that our joy in him would deepen as we take in that which is pure and not impure, lovely rather than repulsive, commendable rather than wrong, excellent, worthy of praise, not shame. You see, it's as our hearts and minds are set on these things that we're more able to see him more clearly and enjoy him more deeply. And as our joy in him gets deeper and deeper, it's, it's this joy that then is given rise in our rejoicing our reasonableness, our prayer, the various ways the joy is expressed. There's something about this list I, I want you to notice. There's something about it that I think, and I know when I've come to it before, when, when I've read it with other people, when I've taught on it before, I, I always go a different direction, but I, you actually have to read it and realize 
But everything that Paul says here, he says positively. Do you notice that? Everything that Paul says, he, he says in the positive. He's encouraging us as God's people to ponder, to calculate, to reflect, to reckon on that which is worthy of our attention. Why? Because the more we intentionally do that, the more we intentionally set our hearts and minds on these things, the better able we are naturally to weed out that which doesn't align with these things. You see, it goes to the old story that I think every pastor has told at some point in his ministry. I'm sure I've told it at some point. I don't even know if it's true. I'll be honest with you. Um, we tell stories sometimes. We heard from other people, and I don't know if it ever came from, so I don't know how it came, but I'll tell it to you now. It's a good story anyway. But there is at least an urban myth that the way the government used to teach people to distinguish between true and counterfeit money was by making them study the real thing. Because the more familiar someone became with the real thing, the more easily they'd be able to spot the fake. You couldn't keep up with all the ways people would try to counterfeit money. But if people became masters of the real thing, more than just familiar with it, but masters of it, all of its details, all of its intricacies, all the ways that things were done, the more easily they would be able to spot all the different counterfeits that people would try to create. See, this is what Paul is encouraging the church in. Whatever, it's comprehensive in all of life, in all the evidences of God's common grace, in all the aspects of the world around you, in his word and in his world that he has created, whatever is lovely, just, honorable, beautiful, worthy of praise and attention, set your heart, set your mind on these things. As one commentator said, it's the will of God that by giving attention to the things of which he approves, we should shape our minds to be like his. To those who do so, he pledges his guardian peace in his own presence as the God of peace. Christians can love, he said, all that is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, and admirable wherever they find it. They can rejoice in the best of art and good literature. They can thrill to great music. They can thrive on beautiful architecture, and they should. Christians can thank God for giving us this ability, even in our fallen state, to create, to enjoy such beauty. And as we set our hearts and minds on those things, worthy of our praise, we're able to see, see, God, see his son more clearly. We're able to enjoy him again more deeply so that that joy can be expressed. That joy, which is the grounds of our rejoicing, it can be expressed then in our reasonableness, expressed in our prayer. And then as Paul reminds us, expressed in the practices the patterns, the behaviors, the attitudes of our lives. Did you know, and I don't know if we've ever read it this way before, but if we keep rejoicing 
as the head of what Paul is encouraging here in these verses and and reasonableness and and prayer as a reflection of our joy, as aspects of rejoicing and what we think on and pondering as the grounds to cultivate that joy that's given rise. Have you ever thought that the very practices of our lives, the patterns of our lives, the behaviors of our lives, they're, they're aspects of rejoicing as well? How we live and the practices of our lives are meant to be an expression of our deepening joy, trust, confidence in who God is for us in his son. They're meant to be joy lived out, delight in the gospel lived out. This is what Paul encourages here and he gets to the end in verse nine. Whatever you have learned and received... So what you've heard me teach is he's opened up God's word. He's taught them from God's word as he's taught them in smaller environments. He's taught them about who God is, who Christ is for them, helped them to come to see God in his son, in his word, whatever they've learned and received, whatever they've heard and seen, however they've observed the truths of God, the joy in Christ being lived out in Paul's life. However his life has reflected something of what he is encouraging them in. Paul says, practice. Practice these things. And look at this promise. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul is just again reminding the church what he has already reminded them of, and it's that we learn from one another. That what we receive from each other, what we learn from each other, what we see demonstrated from one another, anything that reflects a joy in Jesus and a deeper dependency on him. Whatever you have learned and heard from one another that helps your heart delight in Jesus more, whatever you've observed, as we've talked about this in previous weeks, whatever you observed of those around you that inspires your confidence in Christ as you see their life changed by their joy in Jesus, altering their priorities, altering their patterns, altering their practices, whatever you observe in one another that does this, put it into practice. Don't just admire it. Be influenced by it. Practice these things. Live in a manner consistent with these things. Live in a manner, as Paul has already said, worthy of the gospel. This is one more reminder from the Apostle Paul on the necessity of discipleship. The reality that you and I need the input and influence of godly people in our lives. We need the input and the influence of people in our lives helping us to see and to enjoy Jesus more deeply, that our joy might get deeper in him, that our confidence in him might grow firmer, that our delight in him might be more expansive, that we see a transformed life lived out in front of us, that we might come to better trust the one who has changed them, that our hearts are encouraged in different times by the truth of who God is for us in his word, through his son, through one another, that our joy might get deeper so that in all things we might be able to rejoice. Friends, we take this reality as pastors very seriously as we think about what God has called us to do and and who he's called us to be for the church that he has set us over, we we realize that it's our responsibility and it's also our joy to see everyone who calls Redemption Hill home better equipped to be able to give encouragement, to give input and to influence others for God's glory and on their own good. So we want to help you gain the skills necessary 
to communicate the gospel that you might help other people find joy in Jesus. We want to give you the skills and, and the information necessary that you might be able to take the good news of the gospel and better apply it to your own life and to the lives of those around you for God's glory, for their good, and for your and their deepening joy, that in all things we might be able to rejoice. This is something we, we have put a lot of attention to and thought behind. And so what we're going to do, I want to let you know something that's going to be happening soon that is in line with this. It's kind of come out of this. And in January, we are going to begin in earnest something that we are calling Redemption Hill Equip. You'll, you'll find some information about it on inside your worship guide there this morning. But Redemption Hill Equip is going to be a series of labs small groups maxed out probably around 20 to 25 people where we're going to consider together the truth of the gospel. We're going to consider together something of God as he's revealed himself to us in his word. We're going to talk about it. We're going to discuss it. And we're going to build these classes around practical tools to help us better be able to communicate and enjoy and apply the gospel in all aspects of life. And, and so there's going to be a variety of these labs dealing with different things related to the gospel and, and even our careers and our professions, the gospel and our hearts and our lives and our relationships amongst our friends and at home but we're really trying to narrow down as we think about it to at least a core group of labs where if people who call Redemption Hill home were able over a period of time to give themselves to, we really believe the, the gospel temperature in this church and, and, and in this area that you influence will, will go up. As we're better able to see and to enjoy and to apply the grace of God to our lives and the lives of other people, and so this is going to be something we're going to give a lot of attention, we're going to give a lot of focus, and we're going to give a lot of priority to, and it's going to start in January. So go, be sure to look at the, the link there in the guide and, and go online and read more about some of these classes that we're going to be offering. But the reality of it is, together, we want to help one another set our minds on that which is glorifying to God so that our joy in Him might go deeper. And that we might be able to, like Paul says, rejoice. Give expression to that joy in all things and at all times when they're lining up well and when they're not lining up well. And that we might be able together to put into practice what we're hearing and what we're seeing, what we're observing and what we're experiencing of one another. And as this happens, there's a breathtaking promise that Paul reminds us of. Practice these things, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. I don't know if you've realized it yet. I don't know that I've realized it this way before, or at least articulated it like this, but God never tells you to do something that isn't ultimately for your good, your joy, and his glory. So rather than how about you never tell me what to do ever again for the rest of your life, how about please, for my joy, for my good, and for your glory, tell me what to do. We need this peace. We want this peace. Paul's encouragement to the church here is a priceless assurance of this peace that God promises when Paul says the God of peace will be with us, 
he's not just referring to the very presence of God with us and in us by his spirit. It's not simply what he's referring to. Yes, it encompasses that, but that's not the totality of it. The God of peace was a title that is reflective of the activity of God throughout all of redemptive history. This peace isn't simply the peace of an emotion. This is the redemptive, reweaving, shalom peace of God that you read about throughout the entirety of the New Testament. When Paul says the God of peace will be with you, he's talking about God with us in a very particular way. He's talking about God being with us and active in us. This is a reminder and an encouragement and assurance of God's promise that his enabling power will be with us and in us to empower us in our joy and in our rejoicing. Friends, to see the God of peace this morning, we need look no further than to look at Jesus, the very Prince of Peace. See, it's here that we see the God of peace most clearly. You see, it's in Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, that we see the God of peace who acted to turn those who were against him into his own children. That's the fullness, in a sense, of the peace that Paul is talking about. It's in Jesus that we see the God of peace acting to work reconciliation between his enemies at the cross. It's in Jesus that we see the God of peace working to take what sin had separated and bring reconciliation and fellowship. Friends, it's because of Jesus that the God of peace can actually come near. It's because of Jesus that the God of peace can actually be with you. It's because of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that the God of peace came near. And it's because of Jesus we can know that he's at hand and we can come near. Friends, it's only by faith in the Prince of Peace that you and I can come to experience the peace of God that passes all understanding, guarding our hearts and minds and know that the God of peace is with us. Friends, this morning as we look to remember in a couple of days the birth of Christ, the first coming of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Prince of Peace coming. It's as we prepare to celebrate that and then live the next day and the day after that with the expectation and the eager awaiting of his return, you and I can know because of him the peace of God with us in the midst of situations and circumstances when the happenings of life are not lining up the way that we want. Friends, it's in our delight, our increasing joy, our increasing confidence and satisfaction in Jesus, that you and I are able to rejoice in these situations. And this joy gives rise to the experience of the presence of the God of peace who made it possible with us. Friends, this is my prayer for us this Advent season, this Christmas season, that in the midst of situations and times when anxiety and worry seem to be so heightened, threatened so literally to tear our hearts apart, to weigh us down, to choke out the joy and the, the peace in our heart of which should be heightened at this time of the year. 
that you and I can know anew the God of peace at hand with us and the peace of God that passes all understanding as we come to enjoy Jesus this Christmas season more deeply. Let me pray for us, and then together we are going to respond to God's word. We're going to actively give expression to our joy as those who by the grace of God have come to know Jesus as our King and Savior, who have believed upon him with our whole heart. We are going to give expression to the joy and the confidence that we have in him in the gospel as we respond to God's word this morning, receiving communion, remembering his death in our place for our sins. We're going to give expression to that joy this morning as we sing as his people and as we're sent out from here, enjoying him in the places where he has put us. So let me pray. And then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word, to pray yourself, and then we're going to rejoice together. So let me pray and then we'll continue. Father, we thank you this morning that in the midst of what worry and anxiety tell us is insurmountable, what worry and anxiety preach to us is not true, that you preach to us the truth of your grace and of your mercy. You preach to us the truth of your love for us, your power over all things, your sovereignty for your glory and our good, that we can enjoy you, that we can know you, that you are near and at hand, and that our joy can rise up in expressions of dependency, in expressions of rejoicing joy, even when things don't seem to line up the way we want. Lord, for your glory, for our good, for the good of those around us, renew this delight and the satisfaction of our hearts in you this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.